Hey everybody, and welcome to Views on View. I'm Elizabeth Fine, front-end developer from rainy, rainy Seattle. And today on our panel, we have just me. So, hi everyone. And today our guest is Christian Keenlet. Chris, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Hi, I'm Chris. I've been using Vue for not, not so long. It has been on my list for a couple of years, but uh, only recently I've gotten to it uh, more intensively. And yeah, currently I'm working at uh, SAP, doing a lot of front-end stuff for our big data-related products. That's me in two sentences. <laughs> awesome. The thing that I believe most about top-notch developers is that they're constantly learning. Whether you're out watching videos, whether you're reading blog posts or books, whether you're out writing open source software, you're always out there learning how to be a better developer. And my friends at Thinkster and I teamed up and we put together a show called the DevEd Podcast. You can find it at devedpodcast.com. It's run by Joe Eames, who you might know from JavaScript Jabber, Adventures in Angular, and Views on View. And they have terrific conversations about what it means to become a better developer, to learn how to do development, and the ways that you can learn. So if you're looking for inspiration, and ideas about how you can do better and learn better as a developer, then go check out the DevEd podcast. I know you have pretty long history as a developer, a lot of work in native Mac OS and uh, iOS apps. Could you tell us a little bit about your history as a developer? Yeah, sure. So you're right. The main focus of my development li developer life was uh, I've spent in the native world. So for almost uh, 12 years, I've been doing Mac development uh, and uh, yeah, since the inception of the wonderful iPhone, I've been doing iOS development as well and very different things. Uh, so I've done a lot of UI programming on the Mac and on the iPhone, but also a lot of you know backend things that you don't really see or framework stuff. And I've also written uh, or co-authored a book, uh, a German book about. Uh, Objective-C development, and yeah, it was always, and it's still a, always a nice uh, set of topics because, uh, I mean, it's Apple. <laughs> Can't get around them. Yeah, yeah, right, for sure. So view and web development must be quite a change and departure from that. How did you start using Vue, and how did that come into the picture for you? Oh, yeah, so um, that's a pretty long, long story, to be honest. <laughs> Go for it. So in, in 2014, I, the vast majority of this year, I spent actually in the, in the hospital and it took the doctors a while to find out what I have. And so I almost died in the hospital. You know, then I was uh, released from the hospital and rehab began, rehab finished, and then somehow my life was upside down, right? So I wasn't able to go back uh, to, to normal again because the world didn't seem to function again uh, again as before because nothing really made sense anymore so work was you know wh why work you know it's all meaningless somehow why why at all have personal relationships with people it's so unsecure unstable everything then i simply took a cruise a, a long cruise uh, with, you know environmentally friendly not so much but at least uh, the, the cruise uh, got me back to my life uh, because I, I saw a lot of different places, nice things, and somehow this this uh, brought back uh, normality for me. And I knew on my last day on this cruise that uh, sometimes uh, I had to do this again, this cruise, uh, 
And being a developer, I, of course, try to uh, optimize this a little bit. I wrote a little iOS app that uh, allows you to track prices for your next cruise and to also track things that are not tracked usually. So, for example, is it possible to take one cruise to a, one city and then take another cruise to another city, right? So applying a little bit of uh, algorithms to this kind of cruise traveling problem. Of course, I also wanted to do uh, make a little bit of money by developing this app. So I decided it would be a nice thing to just resell cruises. And then it came to me that almost no one I know, and including myself, buys cruise cruises on an iPhone. It's just uh, nothing that I do, and a lot of people don't do that, right? And so I needed a web app for my cruise service. <laughs> so and that's when I first investigated the options, also when I ended up with you. Wow, that is a very inspiring story. And thank you for telling us all about that. So you found Vue. Uh, how, how did you end up approaching Vue as, a, as opposed to other frameworks like React, for example? In the beginning, I really didn't know a lot about web development at all. Most things I knew was uh, from the dot-com boom, where we <laughs> websites uh, were made a lot differently than we do it today. And so I read uh, framework comparisons, to be honest. So And one of the last framework comparisons I found, because I, I don't even know React, I don't know Angular, I don't know Vue at that point in time, right? So the last comparison I read was the comparison that you can see on the Vue website, because there, there's also a nice comparison of frameworks there. And when I read that comparison, I thought to myself, oh, that uh, sounds kind of humble. <laughs> you know, it seems like a pretty objective and or subjective comparison, uh, framework comparison, even though it's from the view authors themselves, right? Right, yeah. And, and yeah, that kind of made an impact or a good impression on myself. Yeah, yeah. So obviously there must have been a learning curve for you picking up, you know, changing from native development, native macOS mode and iOS mode to web development and view and front end. How did you handle all of the things that you needed to learn to build this website? Is there a a method that you use to pick up view or a community that you turn to? To be honest, I was kind of surprised by the documentation of view, especially in, in its early or relatively early days, around 2010 or so. Apple was uh, also known like viewers today for outstanding documentation. And, you know, I read the view documentation like uh, a good uh, thriller. <laughs> It's it's it, it was it, it it really got to me like a sponge. They should make a movie out of it. Yes, of course. It's uh, it's, it's really it's and it's I don't know who writes writes the documentation uh, and it's it amazes me because it's really really good. Mm, and, I actually think uh, Chris on our podcast does a lot of it. Oh, Chris, the master. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, fantastic guy. No wonder. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really uh, good read and then I immediately got my hands dirty because you know I had a problem to solve I wanted to have my cruises <laughs> yeah and that was a really big push pushing motivation for me to get results fast and you did not really it went out of the way and uh, just let me do it and uh, yeah it's I mean you're right it's a huge uh, difference native iOS or Mac development compared to Vue but I think I picked pretty well. So from from a 
philosophical perspective, I think there are a lot of similarities between Vue and, and the Mac community, to be honest. It's Vue, at least from my point of view, tends to be really pragmatic with things. And the Mac and iOS community is more or less the same way. So I felt at home really quickly. When you say pragmatic about things, can you go a little bit more into what you mean by that? Yeah, so for example... I don't want to you know, talk bad about other frameworks, but if you look, there are some other frameworks around the globe that <laughs> fe feel a lot more, you know, um, I say the word, enterprisey, right? So you have really um, factories over factories and engines and whatnot, right? So, and in view, it, it just feels uh, natural and really pragmatic. And they don't over-engineer stuff. They At least from my point of view, it seems like they found a good balance between everything. That's what I mean by pragmatic. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So, Chris, you had mentioned that something I like to do every year or so is look back and do a retrospective on the code that you wrote the previous year. And I thought that was a really interesting idea. That's something that I personally would be terrified to do. I make an effort to never look at old code that I wrote because it scares me sometimes. And I'm like, ah, how was I that bad? But you make a really good point, first of all, because I think one of the things that you mentioned was that it's a really good feeling. And I was thinking when I read that, how is that a good feeling? But it does demonstrate how far you must have come and how much you would have learned. So I was wondering if you could talk to me a little bit more about that. And also, um, I was wondering if you had done a retrospective on any view code that you wrote and what you learned what you looked back on that you wish you would have changed. Yeah, so as you already mentioned, I'm doing, you know, really personal retrospectives uh, every year. I do that because I want to know whether or not I've made any progress. This technical retrospective is, is one part of it. Gets a little bit more personal. Uh, it, I also do other retrospectives with myself. You know, I reflect, how did I feel this year? Do I need to adjust things? Do I need to move out of the country? What? What? I don't know, right? This technical retrospective helps me, you know, find out whether or not I've made progress. And the easiest way to know that you've made progress is, is if you are able to trash talk your own code, right? So if you say, okay, this is total bullshit. I, I would never, ever do this again like that, right? <laughs> I don't want to say that I was the perfect iOS or Mac developer by a long shot. I was not, right? But at a certain point, I felt really maybe too comfortable with Mac and iOS development at a certain point in my life. And I didn't really have this feeling anymore, at least not that extreme as I used to. That's also why I was really happy when I was able to do this view retrospective with myself. And yeah, so I go... I look at my own code and I from from a year ago or so and then yeah I try to find mistakes. Sometimes it, it's even enough to just look at it and you know what's what's going on, right? Yeah. And for example, another thing I do is I also um I mean this is really let's say rational and maybe even calculating, but I also look for on, on job postings, you know, what are people looking for? Not uh, that I want to, you know then change gears and uh, from today to tomorrow switch gears and do something completely different only because the market wants to but you know maybe there's you know a coincidence that things i'm also interested in are you know seeming to gain traction why not jump on on, on it and yeah you asked for an example 
I mean, yes. I mean, if you if you look at very first versions of this component library, <laughs> that it was in the beginning, it was uh, written by using TSX and TypeScript. And after about six months or so, we completely moved to view single file components and uh, all of the sudden the code looked much more readable and nicer. So, I mean, this is a really high-level example, but yeah, I would have never done it the same way again. Yeah. One of the things when I look back, um, not that I've ever actually looked back, when I think back on the, the view code I used to write at the very beginning when I was learning view, one of the mistakes I made was just over-componentizing everything. I'd component for every single little element, even if it wasn't meant to be reusable, even if it wasn't logically you know, separatable into different concerns. I just made everything a component. <laughs> I look back on that and I think, oh my God, I feel sorry for whoever has to pick up that code next. <laughs> and then also I used overused mix-ins, like huge long files of mix-ins that probably caused all kinds of namespacing clashes and things like that. So yeah, I'm glad that I've learned what I've learned. <laughs> Don't you feel better? <laughs> I do. I feel better. And then I feel this little bit of cringe inside of me thinking about, oh, I hope nobody ever looks at that code again. <laughs> but what can you do? <laughs> By the way, a uh, couple of uh, weeks ago, I began to listen to this podcast, actually. And just today, I've listened to the episode about mixins, <laughs> so oh. where uh, where Chris and Tosten were talking about mixins with, uh, was vastly different opinions. <laughs> oh yeah, and really nice episode, by the way. Um, <laughs> well, I'll pass that on. That is something that seems to be very contentious among the view community, and I don't have too strong of an opinion. There's cases where I've used mixins, and it's worked out well for me, especially because now I try not to overuse them, like. For example, in the project I'm using now, I think I've got three mixins, and it's super clear what they're referencing. I think what they reference is, if I remember right, they're referencing code that handles a modal that's meant to be printable, which is used in a lot of different cases, and it's always the exact same implementation every time. And then there's also a mixin I'm using where um, it's logging out. It's like formatting metrics, like analytic cl click metrics, same exact thing every time used in every component. So I figure that's okay. You know, that's the a really good use case for mixins when you're keeping it super clear. The implementation is always going to be the same and the project is relatively small scope. Yeah, they don't bother me too much, but definitely I've put myself in mixin hell before, so I understand that concern. Yeah, so I believe uh, Torsten also made the suggestion uh, with regards to mixins to turn your mixins into a function. And, you know, for example, let's say your mixin injects or adds certain methods or properties, and then you could have a, a function that returns the mixin and you pass in, you specify when you call this mixin creation function what it should actually inject. Oh, okay. Or, or, I believe. Episode was recorded a while back, but I believe this is when Torsten was actually, you know, thinking in his head about the new composition API. Because mm -hmm. and I believe in that moment he was talking out loud a little bit about we could see what is going on in his in his brilliant mind, and now we have it right the right. composition because yeah. Uh, yeah a lot of things he mentioned in this uh, episode he uh, he now realized. Or, mm -hmm. Yeah, have you had a chance to look at the composition API in depth yet? In depth, not, but uh, I've followed this uh, along with great interest. 
Mm-hmm. And I think it's fascinating. And once again, I believe this is a a, a nice, um, how do you say it? Uh, it's a nice mix, mixture with, with the right amount of uh, of the good, the, the best ingredients put into it, right? So mm-hmm. let's imagine Angular and React had a child. It would look like the mm-hmm. uh, compositional API. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah. So I've only looked at the... I, I used this as my pick, I think, on the last podcast. So I've only looked at the view mastery sort of cheat sheet about it, and it just gives a high-level overview. Basically, from what I understand, it seems as though you can use the composition API when you need to generate component that's really complex, kind of like you might turn to JSX for, or, or like a render function for. But then you can also use the template syntax as well if you don't want to do that. Is that your understanding as well? Forgive me in the audience if you are like, you're wrong. (laughs) But (laughs) I haven't looked into it that much since way, way back when they first announced it. And there was all that kind of chaos around it. I believe uh, that's one point. But uh, I think the other is, um, I mean, it's also in its name, right? Compositional API. I mean, in the end, who knows how it will be used and for what it will be used for. But maybe one major use case is, uh, you know, to have composable parts uh, to split your component up, complex cases, like you mentioned, in, in multiple little parts, and then that you can actually reuse them and make it clear at the point where you use them so that maybe circumvents the issue that mixins have to a certain extent, because it's becoming more explicit, but also yeah. composable. Right, right, right. I do remember that was one of the big concerns that this was meant to address. Yeah, I guess we'll see it. Don't know when, you know, at least my colleagues are going to start looking into or start actually using it. I think there has been a pre-version that's been released, right? Or some kind of preview. Yeah. But not yeah. Really but isn't that yet. exciting? I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm totally... <laughs> Very much. I'm, I'm totally... I mean, <laughs> I mean, this may be one big reason why we might both uh, maybe together look back in a year or so when this is, has gone mainstream and uh, say, how have we written our components one year ago? Mm-hmm. I mean, isn't that, <laughs> isn't that sad, <laughs> right? It makes me really excited for ViewConf. I'm not sure how much of Vue 3 is going to be covered in ViewConf, but I'd imagine that it would be um, pretty heavily covered. So, yeah, it makes me really excited. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about this project that you wrote called MiniPress. So... Would you mind telling the audience a little bit about that and why you made MiniPress and what it does? Yeah, sure. So it's uh, a project of mine that is in stealth mode uh, at the moment. So it's available via NPM and it also has a, its own website. And But it's, you know, it's your first time here. <laughs> the website looks really nice. Yeah, thanks. ViewPress always fascinated me as well. So you open ViewPress, the website, and you click on any link and it's immediately there. And then I, you know, launch one of my personal view projects and click somewhere and it takes a little while. And so I wanted to know how exactly this is accomplished. And So can yeah. we pause for a sec? For sure. people who might not know, would you mind explaining what ViewPress is, why you're using it in the first place? Yeah, so ViewPress is a project that makes it easy to, to for example, write your content in, in Markdown and press a button and you have a really nice high-performance static uh, version of, of this site. You have themes, you have plugins, and basically it makes 
makes it really easy to have you know static, really nice websites and or pre-rendered websites, whatever. Yeah, that's what ViewPress is. One of the selling points is that you write your stuff in Markdown. You have uh, some really nice built-in Markdown extensions. Uh, you can use view components inside of Markdown. It really brings a lot with it. So that's ViewPress, yes. Okay, great. Yeah, sorry to interrupt, but go on. I mean, it's always nice to have something like that, you know, a really nice, good-performing website or web application using Vue under the hood. And uh, it was, you know, a mystery for me how this is accomplished. And I wanted to, really badly wanted to know how this works. I felt comfortable by using ViewPress. I've written a couple of ViewPress plugins and I really liked it, but I wanted to know more. And that's why I began to write my own little ViewPress clone. Just for educational purposes, it will never reach the uh, quality ViewPress has. I'm pretty sure there are a lot of edge cases that I missed and stuff like that. But yeah, that was the main motivation to have a mini version of ViewPress, mini press. Yeah, that's really cool. So did you accomplish this at all by looking into the source code of ViewPress or did you do it all just based on your own research and stuff like that? No, I actually looked very intensively at code and not only of, of ViewPress, mm-hmm. uh, but also I, I believe I've checked out about six static site generators mm-hmm. and locally and all, I'm always cross-referencing how they work. So for example, I've also, one of the thing, projects I've uh, looked at intensively is called Saber, I believe it's pronounced. And just to, to double check also, how is this one project doing it? And maybe they're doing it wrong, right? Maybe that's a more, ele- a more elegant way to do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that's how I do it. And then, but it's also a lot of trial and error. So you will see in, in the source code of Upress and uh, also Saber, a lot of things, if you look at it, uh, that don't make sense. And uh, then you try it your way. And all of a sudden, you recognize a lot of mis- things that don't work <laughs> <laughs> by using your yeah. own way. And uh, but I want to know those things, right? I want, to, I really want to know those things. And then I, you know, look at the code. Ah, okay, that makes sense. Yes, <laughs> let's uh, move on to the next uh, problem. I mean, it took a couple of months actually to build MiniPress from zero to what it is now. And uh, again, it was so rewarding building it. It was really rewarding. And in my retrospective in uh, one and a half, two months, <laughs> I will look back at it and will think to myself, yeah, it was a good project to do. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. I'm a huge believer in copying things to learn, you know? So for example, a lot of times uh, if I see a really cool website or CSS effect, 
I'll try and go in and, and copy it even, and look at, look at the code. You know, there's nothing wrong with looking at other people's code uh, because a lot of times, like you said, they've done the trial and error and they figure out the right way to do it. So yeah, I, I'm a huge believer in that. And also uh, at ViewConf last year, Evan, you, he ran a workshop where he basically made a mini view. So kind of like you're saying, instead of mini view press, it was mini view. And he had us all, pretty much copy the code that he was writing, uh, you know, because he had thought it all out and we were all sort of, he'd give us time to like try it on our own. <laughs> and I don't know about everybody else, but I would pretty much fail hard every single time. And then he'd show us how it was done. And now I learned so much about how Vue actually works. It's not something I ever would have thought to do by myself, but if I look into the source code of Vue now, it's a lot easier for me to actually understand what's going on because I've done that sort of like copy exercise. Is there by any chance a recording of that workshop or talk? Um, Because I'm dying right now. I want to see that. <laughs> it was really good. I don't think there is, but he has done a video basically outlining the same thing on View Mastery. So if you were to go check that out, and maybe we can put the link to that in the show notes. Please. Yeah, please. it's a lot of the information is there. Like I, I did a presentation on it uh, when I came back, and I referenced that a lot. Because, you know, my notes, I was trying to take notes so fast and then my notes were just all over the place and that helped me bring them all back together. So, yeah, no, that was super awesome. I'm wondering, did you, did you also have the feeling, you know, when you saw the solution at some point or the one of the solutions that you were amazed? Yeah, so I was we amazed. We have a common feeling about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was amazed that I understood it because I... I I tended to think about Vue as this, you know, sort of pie in the sky thing that was just way out of my reach. And like, I use it and it works, you know, for the code that I want to write, but I have no shot at understanding how it actually works. You know, I understand how it works in words, but I couldn't explain in code, right? So when it, he broke it down and showed us even in a, you know, extremely oversimplified version, I was just amazed. I was like, oh, duh, you know, I, I should have looked at this in the first place. It's not that far out of reach. I mean, not saying that by any means that that code is easy to write or understand, but yeah, I was just surprised that I was like, oh, so that's how reactivity works. I get it now. And that answers a lot of questions for me. So it helps me be a better developer. Yes, that's true. I have a similar feeling about it, but again, in uh, by looking, looking back at it, uh, there are certain you know, things that I believe I would never have been able to come up with in the first place. Now that I oh, know, yeah. now that I know it's, it's, uh, it's obvious mm -hmm. more or less, but I would have never been able to, to, to come up with it. And this makes, you know, much more respect, much even more respect to all those people who can come up with things like that. Yeah. And, it's amazing, but it's such a good feeling when they reveal that to you and you're like, ah, I get it. That's how it works. Um, pretty cool. Do you have more you want to talk about with ViewPress? So uh, there's uh, one more thing or one more, let's say, mini story that happened to me. Uh, so furious back, or let's let's phrase it differently. You will see a lot of people, at least that's also my, my impression, that when you say you're writing something like a ViewPress clone or name any other, you know, solved issue problem out there in the world, that this is a waste of time. But I don't feel so. I, I think it's it's valuable even if it ends up in, in the trash in, in the end of the mm -hmm. day. And um, because may, maybe it's obvious, but it's 
not by a long, long, long stretch. It's not not waste a waste of time. It's even if you can't use this knowledge that you gain immediately down the road in one year or so, you will there will be a point in your life where you are happier that you have this knowledge in your tool set. Right. Yeah. And also, if you ever you're end up using that software, like you're using VPress and you run into bugs, you've probably got a great idea of how to debug that because you've given you've dived into the source code. Yeah, that's yeah. true. And yeah, I can only encourage people to do also crazy things like uh, try re-implement Vue. Why not? Mm -hmm. Right? T yeah. Take a week. It would take a weekend and see. It maybe take only the API documentation. Uh, Go offline for a weekend and see how far you can come up with a you know re-implementation of the Vue API. Let's see how it goes. Yeah, yeah. If I spend a weekend doing that, I probably would not get very far. But I'm sure it's a really good, it's still a really good exercise. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the component library that you are. You one of the major contributors to that? It's the component library at SAP. Yeah, so I, I started it, yes. Oh, okay. So in <laughs> um, last year, I, I transferred internally at SAP from native development to web development. And to prepare myself, I wrote this component library at the beginning on my own. I never intended to release it, actually. So, But then at some point, it was more or less done from my point mm -hmm. of view. So uh, I was at a point where I could say, okay, either I stop or I continue. But then I showed it internally at SAP and asked around. Yeah, all of a sudden it was open sourced and a couple of people were working on it. So that's how it okay. came it came to life, basically. And could you describe a little bit about what the component library is? At SAP, there is a... There is a team internally which is developing a you know, CSS library, a framework like Bootstrap or any other popular CSS framework. And the component library uh, is using this CSS framework internally. You know, just like there is View Bootstrap, there's now one view implementation for our CSS library. This CSS library is also open source at GitHub. And yeah. The component library is more or less trying to bring those HTML, CSS components to life uh, with a few wrapper around them. Uh huh. Okay. That's uh -huh. what it do. it's doing. It's also going a little bit, doing a little bit more, but that's uh, the bread and butter. Yeah, it looks as though it's pretty far fleshed out at this point. So it must have come a long way. That's something that you're internal view developers would be using to sort of keep consistency across UI elements. Yes. On the front end. yes. Yeah. I'm using it myself as well. So as uh, mm -hmm. in my, you know, non-view framework or component right. library development job, I have, I'm also using it, but other teams are using it as well. Yes. Okay. Do you work closely with the designers to build those out? Yes. It's a really close collaboration with the designers as well, because I, I can't <laughs> design at all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sure. And yeah. And there's also already a some kind of design language that has evolved over uh -huh. the time and improved, and, and that's that's where the designers come in. It seems like this, you know, it could be a lot of maintenance work for you because if you have developers across the whole front end that are using these components, they might find bugs or have feature requests. How do you deal with that? We don't make bugs. <laughs> no. So uh, just no bugs. <laughs> no. no, no. Uh, 
That was a joke. Uh, we make bugs. We happily make bugs. We make a lot of them. That's a good question. Uh, where is the time? I don't know. We get support uh, for that. Uh, uh -huh. Multiple parties. So it's actually this open source thing uh, within SAP. You know, it's it's handled as open source, right? So if if there's interest and if there's demand, everyone can at participate <laughs> and can inf influence the project. So it's uh, it's, it's real open source. So right. So if someone yeah. reports a bug to you, you can say you can make a pull request. <laughs> yeah. For, for example, okay. I've also seen a disk uh, is is done in waves. So sometimes, like uh, at the moment, you don't see a lot of action on the repository. But that's okay. I mean, at the yeah. moment, pe people seem to, you know, it's uh, it's consumed and uh, issues come up. But in the next wave, those will be fixed, and you know, it's all good. It's all good. Yeah. Do you find that it's difficult to get people to use the component library? Because something I've experienced is so we have the component library, and then we have designers and. Sometimes the designers in the component library don't necessarily agree on all the time on what the best approach is. And so what happens is people end up forking the component library or just rewriting what's in the component library to match the designs. And so it's kind of this like tug of war where, uh, you know, designers want to do things in the way that they feel is the best user experience. And then the component library, you know, wants everybody to use the component library, but they can't possibly account for all the different, you know, user experiences that the designers could want. So do you experience that at all? And how do you deal with that? Yeah, so of course, we all know our friendly designers, right? <laughs> so they must have, um, yeah, sometimes they dream a lot, but that's okay. I mean, uh, uh, but yeah, yeah I, know, I, know what, I know what you're talking about. And yeah, uh, so for example, personally, even though I can't design very efficiently, I have opinions, uh, of course, mm -hmm. and sometimes, you know, when I talk to designers, they try to convince you, and at some point, uh, you can also just say, okay, uh, we agree to disagree or something like that, mm -hmm. and uh, try to, you know, um, find other things that are missing in a component library that may are maybe even more important than having a perfectly styled out button that works 100% like you want it. So, for example, the, the component library has, has components that um, are not defined by our designers. So, some high-level components, for example, are not even specified by our designers. So, mm -hmm. there's something that's a place for our creativity as, as uh, front-end developers to come up with something. And that's where I then try to find my niche. So, do you also have a kind of component library that you're working on? We do. And it's, it's pretty awesome. It's pretty built out and, and they do work with a design team, but then every other team has their own designers as well. So sometimes oh, yeah. you're like, oh, who do I listen? It's like, mom's telling me one thing and dad's telling me the other thing. We're like, you know, who, do, who am I supposed to listen to as a developer? And what are so, you doing in that situation then? Um, usually what I'll do is I'll take the component library to the designer and I'll just explain, hey, this will be a lot faster for me to build if I can just do it the way the component library says. So do you mind if I just alter your design a little bit? And, and you know, that way it'll stay on brand from any other page or any other, whatever other teams are working on. And usually that works. And sometimes you might say, oh, well, you know, this specific feature or design is really important to me. So 
Like, can you go back to the component team and explain that to them? And maybe, maybe that means I make a pull request to them, which I've never actually done, but I'd imagine that's the the course of action. <laughs> um, maybe I make a pull request to include that, you know, variant or whatever, or maybe they tell me no and I go back and forth or <laughs> till somebody so, so, makes a decision. So did I get that, uh, that you try to also in, you know, those certain critical cases to connect them directly to, to each other? Yeah, sometimes I'm like, why don't you guys talk to each other about it? <laughs> and uh, did, does that work out? Yeah, yeah, it usually works out. It usually works out. It's just, um, I just sense that that might be just a pain point. So it usually works out, but I sense and I feel that there's back and forth a lot of times. Uh, and that's something that's just bound to happen with any component library because, you know, especially on a big team, you are pretty much forcing everybody to stay within the same component design everywhere. And, you know, not everybody's going to agree on that. And so it's a drawback, but I think the benefits of having a component library are so worth it. It makes developing so easy and quick. It's like being a little kid building with building blocks or something. That's how I feel. It's like, okay, I'm going to pop this here, pop that there. It makes things so fast. And a lot of our, uh, like, you know, branding and, accessibility and stuff like that is baked into it. So I don't even have to worry about it. It's great. Yeah. Also, for example, it happened not to, to us uh, at least once that the component library uh, was able to, to abstract some uh, incompatible changes in the underlying CSS framework away for the, mm. uh, for the developer. So once you stick with the component library, you are on the safe side with regards to that. That alone should be... Uh, value enough for, for many teams. Uh, right. Maybe. Now I'm curious that you also have a, a component library and uh, uh, at least one app, uh, as I assume, that consumes it. How do you handle things like customization? And do, for example, do you expect the app that you are writing or that others write by using the component library to add its own CSS in certain places? Or should there be a ready-made solution for... The way we do it is all a ready-made solution. I was actually going to ask you about that with your component library. So how do you handle style sheets with your component library? Is there a small style sheet for each component that kind of gets pulled in with each one? Or do you have a big overarching style sheet that you load in and it covers all of the components? So yeah, what's your solution for that? This changed uh, just now <laughs> uh, with... Um, As we speak, basically, so they changed from the styles team, they changed from having uh, multiple S CSS files to you now it's a CSS-only framework. What they've done is um, instead of having, for example, one variable that is called background or light background, and they have really precise names now, button background. So yeah, this, okay. this, this allows you to you know have really isolated style sheets and mm -hmm. self-contained uh, style sheets, and that's how they are structured at the moment. So you can, if you write a button component, you just pull in the button styles, and you're good okay. To go. Yeah, that's that's good. So it's not all one big chunk of um, code that probably a lot of it is unused. Yeah, something like you do as well, or you used to pull in the style sheet just for each component, and I think. We went through a little phase where we tried doing it all at once and then we were like, ah, that's too much CSS. And so now I think we're heading back to doing one style sheet, you know, for each component. So you can just pull it in selectively. 
So is this component library on NPM? Is that where you get it from? And is yeah. it one package and you just like import the modules from the one package or is each component its own package? So you can do both. You can just use it as a, you know, one you can just import it and then you get everything or you can also selectively mm-hmm. import it. That's up to you. And it was really uh, advantageous uh, to have really multiple ways. I mean, just like Vue does it, you know, I can use Vue via a script tag. I can use Vue via my NPM setup. I can, there are different options. And this is really, because some teams uh, seem to prefer one way over the other, and you don't want to give them any reason to not adopt the component library. Yeah, for sure. So when you first started this component library, you said you went and sort of demoed it or you presented it, did you encounter resistance to that at all? Or was it pretty widely, easily accepted? No, um, it was um, well-received, I believe. Mm-hmm. So it, I, there were no, absolutely no blocks uh, of stone <laughs> laid out in front of me. It was really well-received, yes. And a, a couple of days later, I had a call with the with the Styles team, and they were also happy. And yeah, it's it was really an open thing from the start. Yeah. yeah. Like it should be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was really that, uh, surprising to me. Yeah, it should be. It's a great way to leverage view. It's pretty much yes, the yes. ultimate use case. So <laughs> yeah. yeah. So Chris, how do you decide what kinds of things to componentize? So there are the easy cases and the not so easy cases. The easy cases are Whenever there is some kind of component in the underlying CSS framework, then it uh, will become a component. The other thing is, I mentioned previously that we also have components that are not uh, that have no corresponding CSS component, mm-hmm. and uh, those are the things that, from my point of view, those components should exist if they have uh, come with a certain value attached to them. So, for example, we have a component that is able to render an indefinitely long list of things, right? So, this is nowhere specified in in the CSS uh, library, but obviously makes sense, right? So, having a list of things that you can just scroll through and that's lazy loading, and then you can select certain things, that makes sense. That is one category of components that must be there. The other thing is... In, in case, you know, you see teams adopting the library and struggling with certain constructs. So, for example, the li- CSS library also doesn't define a master detail layout. And this was with, with left and right having scrolling. Yeah. And so things that are also not, not obvious and require a little bit of uh, manual, you know, massaging of your code, mm-hmm. that will also end up in the component library. I hope that this makes sense. Yeah, I know. It definitely makes sense. I think you're explaining yeah. it really well. Okay, good. Yeah, that's, that's, I love hearing about you know, companies with component libraries because it, I, I don't know, I believe, I believe strongly in component libraries because I feel like ours works out you know, really well for me. And it's just such a great thing to invest in because you save everybody so much time. And if you have a UI element that needs to update in one place, you can update it everywhere in one you know, release, or if you have a bug or accessibility issue, you can release that, you know, pretty relatively quickly. So yeah, I think I was very interested to hear about how you guys are doing at SAP. Yeah, so and actually, uh, I mean, one other interesting thing about this component library is 
Actually, it's implemented in Vue, React, and Angular. So, oh, what? <laughs> yeah. And uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm telling a few secrets right now. And internally, there are a lot of other implementations uh, despite those three. But they have not been released or publicized yet. But React and Angular, uh, those two implementations are also open source. So okay. <laughs> if, if you want to see one CSS library adopted by three by the three major frameworks and you want to know that's a really good thing to compare you know how mm -hmm. is this component exactly that component with the exact same css structure how is it implemented in Vue, react and angular if you want to see that <laughs> check out those libraries because yeah and yeah that's also how i sometimes you know try to figure out how did they do this date picker you know this complex date logic. How did Angular do it? I don't know. And then I check uh, the Angular project for, for our library. And yeah. Oh, that's super cool. I always see articles saying, oh, I, you know, read this to find out how, you know, a form is implemented in Vue and React and it compares it. So I think that would be very interesting. Maybe we can, you can send me the link to it and I can put it in our show notes so of that course. our listeners can I, I will. check it out. <laughs> Thank you. So, Chris, it has been really great talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on. And where can people find you on the internet? Yeah, so you can find me uh, on Twitter. Uh, it's my first name plus last name, so Christian Kienle. On GitHub as well, same handle. And this is also where you will find uh, the source code of MiniPress in a little while, <laughs> uh, if you're interested. In. Awesome. One of my favorite communities in programming these days is the Angular community. Every time I go to an Angular conference or meet up with some of my friends who are in the Angular community, I have a great time. And a lot of them have wound up on Adventures in Angular. So if you're doing front-end development, you're looking for a way to keep current on the Angular ecosystem, and you want to have a good time listening to fun people talk about great topics related to Angular, then go check out Adventures in Angular at adventuresinangular.com. All right, so let's do picks. Chris, do you have any picks for us this week? What a surprise question. Yes, <laughs> I, I, have, I have one pick and we already talked okay. about this in this setup here. It's uh, the Compositional API from Vue. I really think it's, it will be a big thing, even bigger than it is right now. And it, it will change the way we write Vue components uh, for the next decade. That's why I'm picking it. And also why I like the guy who made it. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Um, all right, great. And my pick, one pick this week is book. It's A Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking. And yeah, it's just really good. He's actually really funny and a really good writer. So if you're somewhat interested in like time, I don't know, I was a philosophy major, so I have an interest in that kind of stuff. If you're interested in like time and physics and things like that, it's a really great book. And it's not easy to understand, but it's easier than you think. So a lot of it I kind of glossed over, but yeah, definitely a super good read. And it's only like 200 pages or so. So yeah. Manageable. <laughs> yeah, manageable for what it is. Yeah. And uh, that's it for this episode of Views on View. Thank you for joining us. And until next week, enjoy the view. Bye. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.